that group. So, so I think there's, boy, there's a lot to work with, but I think maybe we should start with um, where the comments left us on the IPI, and let's use that as a bit of a baseline, and then we'll come back to uh, some, of the, some of the subjects we just walked through. So Robert, I'll ask you to sure. begin with, with uh, your perspective and, and, and comments here. If you don't mind, I'm going to just talk about where we think, I want to highlight some of the issues that, uh, from the comments rather than just go over that we're supportive Please. of it and everything else. So, First of all, we are in the belief that rebating is a contracting tactic. That doesn't mean that that's the only way you can contract. In fact, when I started in this industry in the 90s, we used to do contracting without rebates, actually. And there are entities within this insurance market that do contracting without rebates, and they do it very well, and they save a lot of money, and nobody's complaining, such as Kaiser. They don't have a PBM. They do upfront discounts for all their contracts, period. So this notion that rebating is the only way we can do this and this is the only tactic that we can use to contract is absolutely false, 100%. There are other ways of doing it which is much more cleaner and we can get to a better system. So where, where did we focus on, on our comments that may be a little bit different or I want to emphasize on? Number one, fees. Fees, fees, and fees. It's not just about rebates. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I harp on this every single day. And I would point to you, IQV does great research, but so does Pew Research. Go look at the Pew data that was presented about two weeks ago. Go look at specifically figure nine, and you will see how the fees, which include DIR fees, admin fees, and other type of fees have been increasing significantly and while rebate retention has actually stayed flat over time in the last few years. So that's one. Second thing is one of the most important things to note here, which the data came out yesterday. 70% of specialty pharmacy business is owned by four PBMs in this country, and that's where the fees and the rebates are. So we pointed out in our comments that there needs to be some questions or some guidance about ownership of the PBMs of these specialty pharmacies. So the four top far, uh, PBMs own about 70% of the volume. And we are worried that these point of sale discounts then will flow back into the PBM model and it will uh, create the same bad incentives that currently exist with rebates. So there needs to be guidance from the administration we asked for about PBMs who own pharmacies, uh, specialty pharmacies. And the last thing that I would say is Part B rebates. And we had a little bit of a discussion here. The, the question was from the administration whether we believe that Part B rebates should be removed. Our point is that, yes, we should consider removal of the rebates from the Part B because we know now, and you know, we will get into the biosimilar issue, that rebates in the medical benefits create the same perverse incentives that they do in the pharmacy benefits. It's no different. And you could see this clearly in the biosimilar space with regards to the uh, infusion market. So what we said that rebate should be removed and that, the, and the other reason is, I think Peter alluded to that in the last panel, you don't want to create a system where then they're preferring uh, an infusion drug versus a retail drug, which is bad policy to start with, right? Because the costs are higher. Uh, you know, and it's better to keep the patients in an outpatient setting. So those are the three areas that I would say we focused on, on our comments that probably I wanted to highlight. Yeah, and I would say in general, um, you know, our Novartis-Sandoz policy, we are very similar in our views. I'll, you know, speak a little bit more to the shift from Part B to Part D, which I feel like 
is a really important uh, mechanism to increase biosimilar adoption in the U.S. moving forward. Um, and it's kind of perplexing that, that it hasn't been done. To me, again, it's one of these no-brainer um, tactics that actually plans and PBMs have been moving towards the last several years, right? Managing across the medical and pharmacy benefit. Um, it's helped to remove some of those rebate wall uh, barriers that have existed by looking at drugs across uh, both benefit designs. So to me, that's, that is uh, definitely something that uh, we're looking forward to supporting. Um, something that we haven't talked about, again, because it's probably more specific to biosimilar uh, adoption, is just legislation around anti-competitive measures um, in, the in the patent area. So really making sure that we're, you know, obviously for keeping the life of a patent and not minimizing that, but making sure that there's not anti-competitive uh, strategies and tactics employed to delay biosimilars from, from the market. I think we've seen just the delays um, Having a uh, biosimilar that's been uh, caught up in legal issues for the last three years that was approved by the FDA uh, in 2015, you know, I think the market in general has seen those delays. Uh, we've lost like f about four and a half billion dollars um, in savings that could have occurred. So definitely want to want to make sure that we're kind of talking about that as well. Uh, good morning, every still morning, right? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Thanks, Eric, for the opportunity to be here. Um, with apologies up front, since Monday, I've only read 16,000 of the comments. <laughs> so I'm not quite fully informed yet, as I think all of us are. But um, I would associate a lot of our perspective on behalf of AEM, and we represent, as Eric said, generic manufacturers, others in the supply chain. But also, we represent Diane's company, Sandoz, and increasingly biosimilar manufacturers as well. Um, you know, in terms of the rule itself, I guess our response and our comments reflected this. Um, good step, more needed. Right? So you got to start somewhere. And I think with everybody talking about perverse incentives, what's interesting from the part of sort of the, the side of the ecosystem that either you know, provides market, more enhanced market-based competition to rapidly deteriorate prices after the appropriate expiry of intellectual property, whether that be through patents or periods of exclusivity, um, the, the, the one thing that we are increasingly seeing, right? if you think about the underlying tenets of what gave rise to the generic industry as we know it today, three decades ago through Hatch-Waxman and about a decade ago through the BPCIA Act, was that once we recognize the appropriate period of intellectual property protection, competition is supposed to come to market and prices are supposed to be lower for the end user. That's not happening anymore in many instances because mm -hmm. rebates have been weaponized mm -hmm. against follow-on competition. Mm -hmm. Right? So the reality is when people say the current system of perverse incentives, which we totally associate ourselves with that point of view, they say, so it works for everyone but the patient. I think it's right to focus first and foremost on the negative impact of the patient, but it also doesn't work for the follow-on generic or complex generic or biosimilar manufacturer. And Diane just gave you a perfect example of why it doesn't. So for all the finger pointing that goes on between kind of big branded pharma and the supply chain, the one place, interestingly, where they're willing to hold hands is when they anticipate competition coming to market. The, the payer or the plan of the PBM will go back to the manufacturer and say, this is where we anticipate the first filer to come in. We are going to need you to increase your rebate to get it to that net price. And in exchange for that, we are going to keep that product off the formulary or we're going to put it down on tier four, increasing the copay. Think about how illogical this is in a country that wanted robust market-based competition at some point, where a patient is asked to pay a higher copay or a higher coinsurance for a follow-on generic or a follow-on biologic. It is absolutely insane, 
And our concern as we move forward is, while this rule and moving to the front end is a good positive step, that CMS and HHS have the opportunity to actually do more. And if Hatch-Waxman and BPCIA recognize the distinction between a brand and a generic or a biologic and a biosimilar, then why shouldn't formulary design? It once did, but over the last several years, they are mingling generics and brands in the same tiers of formulary and actually increasing exposure to patients where they may actually be paying more for ultimately the product in the market that is less expensive. Mm -hmm. That's the issue that they have to fix. So, so let's go into that issue for a moment. So when you speak to, help us understand, mingling the formulary, wh what do you mean by that and where do we, what, what, give us an example. Of so one of the, yeah, happy to do that. So if you look at a window of time from 2011 to 2015, this was a study that was published last year, full transparency, uh, AAM. We didn't do the study, we, we, we underwrote the study, but it was done by health consultancy firm Avalier. They looked at Part D formularies. And in 2011, generics were on tier one of the formulary, the most advantageous position with the least, therefore, either copay or coinsurance in 2011, 71% of the time. Mm -hmm. They were a tier one option. Fast forward to 2015, 19%, right? So how did that happen? Well, actually, in the way they administer the Part D benefit, CMS issued a rule saying you can actually begin to commingle the tiers between generics and brands. And the point was made in several previous panels about the sensitivity to premium increases, which I would agree with. The other thing that the government, whether it was Democrat or Republican, is very sensitive to is the average cost per formulary tier when Part D plans roll out. So by commingling brand uh, generics onto branded formularies, you can actually control the rapid rate of increase, particularly in the smaller specialty area. So that's one of those things that's happened. And the net effect of that is that patients are actually being asked to pay even more. You've heard a lot about the sick subsidizing the, 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 the healthy. That's true. But the other reality is, is that you have patients, when lower price competition hits the market, who are actually going to be exposed to a higher degree of coinsurance than they should have otherwise. If we get back to brands or brands, generics or generics, biologics or biologics, and biosimilars or biosimilars, and actually on the latter, let's get to that place because from the time you launched, which was the first launch in the U.S., we haven't had that. That's an area of opportunity, <clears throat> excuse me, for the government and commercial payers moving forward. And, and Robert, with your you know, increasingly diverse product portfolio, what is your perspective on that nuance, right? Well, there been we have a very diverse, as you know, yeah. we do generics, we do biosimilars, we do innovative products. So Pfizer sits on every single panel and uh, discussion point, and the biosimilars is a very important issue because the biosimilars to me is a private sector solution for a lot of these problems that are being raised. So if you look at the IPI, let's go back to the IPI discussion. The IPI was really intended to address the Part B issue, right? So would you rather have IPI or better adoption of biosimilars in the market space? Because majority of biosimilars coming into the U.S. market are going to be in the Part D space. They're not going to be in the Part D or retail space. So there are only two main biologics in the retail space. So the challenge with biosimilars is that, unlike other products, you have three layers that you have to get through to be able to get a biosimilar to the patient. Unlike when you go from a brand name small molecule to a generic small molecule. So the first thing is insurance coverage. I think, Shib, you talked about it. You know, the tiers are screwed up. There's fail-first mechanisms that they're controlling it, and that's the rebate trap issue that comes into play. And so you, first things first, you need to address the rebate trap, and this is the first step, this HHS rule, to address that. I don't think it completely addresses it, but it's the right step towards it. So the rebate trap needs to be addressed. The second thing, as much as I love my physicians, they have an incentive not to 
prescribe and utilize infusion biosimilars because they're cheaper, they make less money. It's economics 101. There's nobody in this world is gonna wanna let, make less money this year versus next year, so they make every kind of excuse in the world about lack of education, the interchangeability issue, all these things, and when you talk to them and you push them at it, you realize it's an economic issue, which Peter talked about. And now, my fear is that we can't push them too far into changing the reimbursement level of Part B, and this is my fear, because if you disincentivize physicians in their offices to infuse, the next step is those patients are gonna end up in Sloan Kettering and the institutions, which the prices are a million times higher than in a physician's office. So we need to find a balance here. But physician incentive is absolutely true. They have no intention of doing it, and they'll use every single excuse, including insurance coverage. The third part is really in the Part B side of it. And it's really, the way I explain uh, Medicare Part B, or Medicare in general, is that you walk into a showroom of cars, and you have a Ford and a Mercedes-Benz, and they're priced the same. So there is no incentive for a patient to pick the Ford. They will always go for the Mercedes-Benz. So they always have been asked to use the brand name drug instead of the generic. So the physician uses the excuse to me, and I was with a bunch of rheumatologists last week, that look, if you don't convince the patient that there's a benefit to them, they will always want the brand name drug instead of the biosimilar. I think that's also somewhat misaligned. So everybody's doing this, right, for biosimilars. Insurers are saying, physician's not prescribing, there is no incentive for me to put it because I lose the rebate from the manufacturer. The physician says insurance is not covering it, so I'm not stocking it and I'm not prescribing it. And the patient says, I really don't care because I don't have a skin in this game. Mm -hmm. So there's like, we need to get through this. And if we don't, and this is the thing I always tell people, and I always tell my physician and rheumatologists and oncologists that if this doesn't happen, if you look at the market share for, and this is for chronic use drugs, I think the uh, more supportive care drugs are doing okay in the market. They're growing and they're doing fine. But the chronic use drugs, and we don't know what's gonna happen with the biosimilars that are coming out for oncology care. If we don't address this issue, what will happen is that companies like Pfizer and Novartis will pull out of the market, and even though you've seen a downward spiral of ASP in the last three or four quarters, and I'll make the general uh, differentiation between Remicade and Inflector and Reflexus, you've seen this ASP coming down. That ASP is going to right back up as soon as we leave the market. So it is to the advantage of everyone in this industry, pharma companies included, to have a better adoption of biosimilars. If not, we're going to lose the battle I mean, win the war, uh, win the battle, but lose the war, sorry. And that's my fear, that we're gonna go down this rabbit hole and then IPI becomes a reality. Mm-hmm, is it a result? Not to be true, I think we probably could agree on most things up here, so to, to kind of add to that discussion um, from just a little bit different uh, bent, until that, you know, the misaligned incentives around buy and bill, you know, if they ever get fixed, um, you know, I think we use the only analogs we have in the biosimilar space are medical benefit drugs, right? right? And so then we forecast out what does the biosimilar, um, you know, future look like. Um, and I think the tipping point truly is uh, the first pharmacy benefit biosimilar. So once that launches, I think you're going to see um, quick conversion, quick uptake, and, you know, high levels of control, again, because it's a pharmacy benefit. 
um, and there's going to be comfort level. I think that's what you, you've seen a little bit similar situation in Europe where it's, you know, comfort, the number of biosimilars, all of those things. There's not necessarily interchangeability. You know, EMEA doesn't have interchangeability rules and they're not forcing these things. It's happened naturally through a tender system and through um, a competitive market in Europe. So I think, again, once that pharm first pharmacy benefit, although, you know, there's, that's not the majority of the future of biosimilars, that may be the tipping point to then have so. physicians um, increase their comfort around those medical benefit products. So I guess one of the questions relative to the proposal in our talk earlier, our discussion earlier of what it will cost is, does this reduction of rebate walls and the opening that provides, one out of three ain't bad if that's all you can get, but it's not three out of three. How do you think about how far, does this move us part of the way and therefore engender more competition and lower prices, or does it not? Okay, so uh, I'll answer like our CEO answered at the Senate hearing, and I'll say this. So number one, this is the, no, no. Actually, his answer was very quick and short. I will elaborate a little bit. So one, um, we believe that this is the first step into fixing the system. This is not end and be all. This is step one that we need to go through and fix it. Number two, what he said, and it's absolutely what we continuously saying, and we made it in our comments, is that if this type of a rule applies on the commercial side, there is no reason why you would not see list prices come down. But you cannot have two different list prices right now. So, but again, I want to go back to the comment I made first thing. Rebating is a tactic for contracting. Removing rebates from the equation doesn't remove the leverage and ability of contracting at a discount level. It just happens that you take out this perverse incentive of rebates from the system. And I go back to the Kaiser model. Kaiser, nobody's hearing Kaiser complaining about drug prices because they go on a discount level and they contract out on a discount level. They have no PBMs, therefore they get all of the benefits of the concessions. Chip, further thoughts on actually driving yeah, I mean, the just adoption? To, just to pick up on that, um, yeah. two things relative to something that, that Robert and Diane both touched upon. Um, about three weeks ago, I testified at the Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee right next to the witness for Kaiser. They have 90-plus percent penetration rates on biosimilars. That's, that's, okay? So they're, they're doing it differently than most. Um, on biosimilars, one of the things I like to say when I'm speaking publicly is that there's a large swath of the healthcare market that says that they support biosimilars, and then there's a subset of us that actually believe it. Right? Because if you look back uh, 30 years ago when generics post-Hatch-Waxman started to get their feet under them and started to get significant uptake, there were a lot of critics who didn't want to see them be successful that argued on three fronts. They argued about, they questioned the safety and quality. They questioned whether or not they would really provide meaningful savings. Last year, our members provided over a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of savings to the U.S. healthcare system. So I think that hopefully that argument is, is now gone. And the third was that the FDA wouldn't have sufficient resources or expertise to be able to regulate these products. Okay? BPCIA passes. We begin to develop the pathway. What were the three arguments against biosimilars? They were the exact same three arguments. And you actually have folks out there, and, and this is really interesting for me for somebody who spent two decades on the branded side before coming over to the generic and biosimilar. There is now a difference of opinion, and I give a lot of credit to Novartis and Pfizer because I think they're on the right side of history on this, is that there is a fracture within the branded industry about supporting and not supporting biosimilars. And I'm not going to name other names because you can clearly, if you're paying attention to this, see who's for it and who's against it. 
Um, but ultimately, over time, if we don't, and, and there's been actions taken, filings of citizens' petitions, if you look at some of the public awareness and patient education campaigns that are alleged to put context around biosimilars, I remember seeing one that uh, compared a biosimilar to the werewolf in the Little Red Riding Hood story. And it said, be careful, because not everything appears to be what it is, right? I, I can tell you the FDA had a really allergic reaction when we gave them a heads up on that. So I think that's where, from a broad education point of view, we need the government, but we also need the private sector. We need Part B reform. Otherwise, for all the reasons Diane stated, you're not going to get the uptake on that front. And the last thing we need is, um, and this is an issue that's, that's um, uh, very uh, present right now in, uh, in Washington around this discussion around patent settlements and legislation that's moving both in the Senate and the House. Um, the reality is, when we have a system that allows the largest biologic in the world to file a hundred plus blocking patents against a product. You're not going to allow companies to settle for that. You don't, you, you will not see competition for Humira in 2023 or 2024. It'll be 2034 before you see it, right? And, and if you think I'm making that up, the, the bill that passed out of that health subcommittee had not only a forward leaning lens, it had a retroactive provision. So all of the agreements that AbbVie has signed with other, including branded biologic companies and biosimilar manufacturers, all of those would have been wiped out if that bill became not law. Now, fortunately, I think some rational heads got involved. They removed the retroactive uh, um, uh, aspect of that. But that bill's still moving forward in the House and the Senate. And if you actually make a presumption that every settlement between an originator and a biosimilar company or a brand and a generic company are anti-competitive, you're going to see less companies filing to challenge patents. They just will not be able to do it, and the Humera strategy will take off like wildfire. Talking about a chilling effect. So I do want to move to some, a conversation around authorized generics, but I want to make sure, are there questions in the room on the biosimilar side? Yes. So... So we're looking into that, but this is a thing. I mean, it, it, it's a good test case. So it's interesting, right? We're going through this change in the rebate with the HHS rule, but at the same time, companies are experimenting with different models, right? So you're hearing every day another company come, with, come out with an authorized generic version of their product at about 70%, 80% lower list price. But the interesting part is that those companies are not getting traction with those drugs yet. So that tells you the incentive is not, it's not the price. It's really the, the way that the contracting is set up. So answer your question, whether or not to dueling NDCs, yeah, we can do that. But the, again, I can tell you every single brand company out there that has a product that's been listed lower in their price compared to the competitors in that market, and they bring this product into the market, and all they're being told by PBMs and insurers is go increase your list price and give us more rebates. And then we will put your product into the... So I'm not sure if this is going to address that. I think so. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, those are the things that we're looking into, but I think the, my point to you is that the evidence doesn't show that the market values lower prices with the current system in the commercial side. So you can't have two different systems because we know one thing in, in the Part B uh, from the biosimilars is that the behavior of the commercial side with regards to re uh, Inflectra 
is affecting how Medicare pays for biosimilars. Because remember, Medicare Part B has no way of controlling, the, right? There are no formularies or anything else. But we know because biosimilars are being restricted on the commercial end, you know, physicians are basically prescribing Remicade because they say, I don't want to carry two products if the commercial payers. So physician is not going to just see Medicare or uh, commercial payers. They're seeing all types of payers. So their inventory has to reflect that too. I think, you know, I do think that that's what you're going to see in this bifurcated situation. You're going to see one situation with the low net price, mm -hmm. you know, an, an alternate NDC, and mm -hmm. then the commercial market still in this rebate um, situation. And quite honestly, until, again, that Shangri-La situation happens, if it ever does, you know, manufacturers are going to play, you know, try to get access for their products in and use the mechanism that exists today, right? Whatever it does, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is, is what's happening now, yeah, right? exactly, it, we're all, doing. We're, yes, yeah. as Robert said, um, authorized generics have a lower list price. There, you know, there are brand over generic strategies because of the rebate system that are keeping those lower priced uh, drugs from uh, accelerating adoption. So again, that's how it exists today, but there are ways around that um, until you get to a future state. And, but we have real-world examples. Like PCA, PCSK9 to me is a real-world example of comparison, right, between the product that one company did, which is let's lower the net price by rebating versus another company which just said we're going to just drop our list price. And let's see which one gets adopted in the real world because the incentives, if, if we all want lower list price, it should be the company that lowered the list price and got to the net price, which is lower. But clearly, it's not the case. And that's been a tactic specific to the Part D market. Mm -hmm. Express Scripts, you know, launched their benefit design last year and have had very, you know, limited adoption of that. Very few manufacturers have, you know, chose, chosen to mm -hmm. launch an alternate NDC, except for those that have had challenges getting uptake in the Part D space. So with, you know, the movement to remove the safe harbor for rebates in Part D, you won't really need that mechanism, right? It's, again, yep. just a tactic. But you may, you know, see it in other the other spaces. Other questions on the biosimilar side? Diane, in, in your prior life, you saw quite a few authorized generics and, and similars with the, um, the other pathways that you introduced at Takeda. So maybe it's worth having you uh, educate us a little bit about some of the analogs to what we're seeing today. Um, yeah, it's really, um, so had the opportunity to launch um, a diabetes product um, in a very competitive space and launch an authorized generic that was really um, blunted by anti-competitive tactics as well as a high rebate wall. Mm -hmm. um, so lived through that situation, again, in this rebate-driven uh, environment, as well as on the flip side, uh, had the opportunity to launch another uh, authorized generic in a different space in the anti-inflammatory space and uh, utilized a brand tactic, right? Utilized the brand over uh, generics tactic for the authorized generic and, and had a lot of success. So again, playing within the constraints of the system, I think is what you've seen. So until that system changes, you know, the workarounds are there to, to, to limit future competition. Mm -hmm. um, same thing is happening right now with 505B2s. Um, you know, there are epi, you know, we have uh, shortages of EpiPen from a supply standpoint, and yet there are new EpiPen, uh, uh, EpiPen uh, manufacturers out there that have lower list prices than the generic and aren't getting uptake on uh, payer formularies yet. So again, until some of those changes take place, uh, 
you're going to see this unusual uh, environment where low net, net prices uh, don't really get uh, uptake or adoption. And as you've implemented strategies that focused on, and these are all different strategies focused on access, one of the questions that we often get is, well, what is the derivative impact to the distributors and to the pharmacies? And so when you look at the supply chain dynamics, um, and those are real-world experiences where you are launching AGs, or if we think about, you know, how much is that contemplated, um, you know, in these strategies because there's more to the supply chain than just the access elements? Yeah, so obviously there's an adverse impact to wholesalers when you lower uh, net prices, and it all depends on volume, right? Yeah. So I think at least in the situations I've been involved in, um, you know, typically it's, you know, an authorized generic, if you're taking an authorized generic earlier than an LOE, it's because yeah. volume isn't there, right? So it's a, just a different strategy to try to increase your volume. So from, from the other pieces of the supply chain, volume isn't there. The, the dollars we're talking about from a differential net price standpoint are not that great. Um, haven't seen it as much, you know, in, in drugs that are extremely successful, have high volume, and then pull that out. I, Probably the only analog I could say was Mylan's um, glitterum or acetate, who um, went uh, really low uh, recently um, to try to uh, get around, again, the high rebates um, that Teva has in the Copaxone market. And I think there's some offsets that occur on the sell side. They may be making less on the buy side from the manufacturer, but they make it up mm -hmm. on, on the other side of the coin. Eric, if I can add to that, it's an interesting dynamic that you raise with the wholesalers because in the traditional um, generic marketplace, mm -hmm. um, a lot of what you've heard uh, earlier today from, um, from, from Jenny at Pharma and Dan from Bio about the impact on the PBM space, the consolidation of wholesalers and then teaming up with chain pharmacies to create these purchasing consortiums has actually driven the irony of the entire drug pricing debate is that for the, three, the last three years, traditional generics are experiencing an unprecedented un, and in many ways unsustainable period of price deflation. Mm -hmm. So majority of drug costs in the United States are going down. And you can imagine how well that's received every time I go to Capitol Hill and try to message that. It doesn't go over <laughs> very well. Um, but, but the reality is, I mean, we had one of the large wholesalers when they were in Washington. He had the CEO come in to meet with us. And, you know, there are obviously parameters as a trade association of what you can and can't talk about. And so it was just more of a policy discussion. But I remember at one point, just in the frustration, because they've had challenges of themselves, but somebody said, you know, just what we need is we need the generic industry writ large to be able to realize upward pricing flexibility. And I just sat back and had an out-of-body experience. I'm like, well, you know, like, if, if, if we're going to be honest here, like, who's preventing them from doing that? Mm. Who is chasing price down below the cost of manufacturing to a point where there are companies that are doing, if you hear my members say in their quarterly results or annual results that they're quote unquote, optimizing that portfolio in very limited instances, that, that, does that mean they're expanding their portfolio, right? They're cutting the number of products. And if you actually think about the administration's blueprint or even where Democrats are saying, whether they're single payer advocates or not, for the environment that they're in, we're in, they say, we need more market-based competition. We're actually trending in the opposite direction right now. I, I couldn't agree with him more. And I think we have a perfect example in the sterile injectable market right now of where you drive the prices so low that everybody drops out and then all of a sudden if you have one or two manufacturers left or one manufacturer left and they have any kind of a shortage issue, then you have massive problems in the marketplace. And not only from a pricing and cost standpoint, just patient care standpoint. And we're not talking about drugs that are 
not utilized or not vital. We're talking about critical drugs, especially in the sterile injectable market in the hospital setting. So you gotta be really careful, and that's why I think the generic market is almost like a two different markets to me. It's one that really needs uh, competition, like what the FDA has done to bring in products in the market. The other one that really needs a fix in the way that we finance the generics uh, to be able to stimulate competition and bring companies like Pfizer into this market to be able to manufacture these products. Yes, I'm mean, speaking from experience, the, you know, the competition, the market has squeezed generic competition so much that companies like Sando, who are a top three generic manufacturer, are divesting their oral solids business because yeah. there's you know, double digit uh, declines year over year that just are unsustainable. So it's, it's a precarious situation, very similar to what you're seeing uh, in biosimilars and some of the large branded companies yeah. deciding to opt out of future yeah. uh, development programs. And to your point, we used to really watch for shortages on the injectable side, and this is the first year we're really no, watching yeah. for injectable for shortages on the oral solid yeah. side you because should. there's been so much rationalization. Yeah. Other questions for the panel? Robert, I may ask you a question I asked of Jenny earlier, which is as you look at potential options for, op for operationalizing a move to discounts, is there a bias against the PBM as the entity that would actually make this possible and would adjudicate it? Is there a bias toward other supply chain and pharmacy distributor switches, or is that, are so, you ambivalent? So if you, if you read our comments, we're sort of like one, uh, we made two points, which is important on this. Number one, we said the data flow needs to be much more, uh, less judicious, and it should flow among different parties. So if other entities want to enter this, sort of be the middle person to do this chargeback we're talking about, that they have the capability of doing it. Um, but we're not like fully baked into one entity or another. I think it should be a competitive marketplace that we shouldn't have consolidation and only one entity doing this, this service. There should be multiple parties being able to do it. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that um, going back uh, to my initial comment, one of the things that we're concerned about that this chargeback system, again, going back to the specialty pharmacy ownership by the PBMs, I think that needs to be addressed because that's where the chargeback on all the rebate and the money flow is gonna happen. So we would, we, we need to have that fixed as well, besides uh, figuring out the chargeback mechanism. And Diane, I sense there might be a comment behind the uh, copay question to the, to the prior, <laughs> prior uh, group. Any thoughts to share with us on that topic, which is certainly one that, that uh, a hot topic. Sure. Yeah, I think you know copay support is another situation where um, you want to remain competitive, right? And and where the pain point has been, and the whole reason why you know we're looking at uh, point of sale rebates is because it's it's at the pharmacy that the patients are feeling the high cost of drugs. Um, and so everyone is in the copay market to to bring those costs down. You know, if we solve that problem, and I know with high deductible plans, maybe it can't be totally solved, but as a manufacturer, I would rather put, you know, that extra X percent, you know, that I'm spending in copay, which is a gross to net hit, right to the patient at the pharmacy. Um, there's cost savings along with that as well. So um, I think that whole market, there's some questions as to what the future of that looks like. There's a misunderstanding about people that industry wants copay cards. Yeah. And no. no. No, it's we don't want it. Yeah. It's a, it's no. a, an administrative burden. Um, yeah. 
We're it's not, a solution we're not out to there, a problem. Right. We're not the out there championing copay card usage or trying to increase the copay card usage. No, it's it's unfortunately it's a band-aid on a problem, and we're trying to address the problem and to get away from this band-aid issue. Well, it's it's a pitched battle of a hundred band-aids. Right. Exactly. Right. So exactly. We're, we're, we're far right. from, from the original. Well, that may be a a good place to wrap.